Welcome back to My Side of the Universe on KOAL 107.3 FM and 7.50 AM. I'm your host, Todd Wilcox, and we have a wonderful lady named Brenda Dunn on today. She's going to be at Contact in the Desert, one of my favorite events ever. And uh, she's going to be leading a group or two and talking about consciousness, the source of reality. She has books that you can check out. Um, Margins of Reality, The Role of Consciousness in the Physical World, Molecular Memories, just to name a couple. Um, you can find information on her at her website, which is www.icrl.org. Go check that out. And also check out the contactinthedesert.com website and see what's available there. Be sure to follow our sponsors, the Eastern Utah History and Tourism Association. Go see Bobcat and Miss Kitty. Uh, you'll have a great time talking to them, and they will have something good in their shop. Even if you just get to talk to the ghost, it'll be fun. Go see them. We'll be back in just a moment with Brenda Dunn on My Side of the Universe on KOL AL 107.3 FM and 7.50 AM. Welcome back to My Side of the Universe on KOAL 107.3 FM and 7.50 AM. I'm your host, Todd Wilcox, and we have a wonderful lady on with us today. Her name is Brenda Dunn. She's going to be at Contact in the Desert, one of my very favorite events to go to. Uh, this year, it's all going to be online. So, um, so no matter where you are, you can go to it. If you're, if you're um, anywhere in the United States, you can go. If you're in my favorite place on the planet, Easter Island, you can even be a part of the event. So... Um, Let's, uh, we're going to turn this over to Brenda in just a minute, but um, be sure to check out Conscious, Contact in the Desert and also look at Brenda's website, www.icrl.org. That's www.icrl.org. Brenda, welcome to my side of the universe. Thank you, Todd. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, this is very exciting. We got you on a wild day. You've had quite the adventure today, and, and uh, we're going to have fun for the next hour and, and uh, just talk about your work, and we'll talk about uh, Contact in the Desert and, and just have a great time. So you have, um, let's, let's start with you. You know, we talked about your website, so people can go start looking at that. Um, you have several books that you've been um, a co-author on. Uh, the one I have the notes on is Margins of Reality, The Role of Consciousness in the Physical World. Um, would you mind telling us about your other two books as well? Okay. Uh, Margins of Reality was originally published in 1987, uh, and it was a description of the research that we were doing at uh, Princeton University's PEAR Lab. That's P-E-A-R, and stands for Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research. Um, and uh, the program ran from 1979 until 2007. So uh, around 2005 or six, uh, we felt that we should do a sequel because we had done a lot of stuff since Margins was published. So we wrote another book called Consciousness and the Source of Reality, The Pair Odyssey. Um, and that has the complete overview of the work that we did at PEAR. Both of those books tended to be a little on the technical side with lots of tables and graphs and whatever, you know, equations and all that. Uh, but a lot of people who knew us said that you can't really talk about the PEAR program or convey the sense of the PEAR program without talking about the relationship between you and Bob John. Bob John... I uh, was the founder of the lab and a uh, an aerospace scientist who was into advanced aerospace propulsion systems. But at uh, the time that uh, we started this laboratory, he was uh, dean of the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Princeton University. And um, our relationship, <laughs> we, we were very different. We were very complementary. We came from very different backgrounds and very different personalities, but we worked together wonderfully. And the uh, complementarity of our different styles and personalities really was at the core of the program. And so we decided to write this other book uh, in 2006, I think it came out. Uh, I'm sorry, 16. Um, or maybe it was 15, I'm not exactly sure. 
that we called Molecular Memories. And that's just a book of little vignettes that talk about Bob and me and uh, the program and some of the fun things that we we learned and experiences we had uh, in running the PEAR program together. Uh, we also co-edited a couple of other books and our uh, ICRL organization, which is a small nonprofit uh, that really, it, it's not a research program per se, although we encourage the research by others. Um, but we also have a, uh, a publishing imprint called the ICRL Press. And it, it has now published about 18 different books that all deal with the relationships among science, spirituality, and consciousness. Uh, basically, uh, I believe, or if we believed, that consciousness is the link between science and spirituality. So we have, there's, there are a number of excellent books on there, and they're all listed on our website. Uh, so they're not all by us. Uh, they're by other people as well who share our vision and uh, our interests. Um, anyway, uh, I could tell you a little bit more about the PEAR program. Yes, because I spent 28 years of my life as its laboratory manager. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, it was initially uh, stimulated by a uh, student undergraduate uh, project. This student had read about some work that had been done by Helmut Schmidt, who was a physicist at that time. He was with the Boeing Aircraft Company. And... Um, he had done some experiments that employed a, a uh, random number generator, if you will, a, an automatic coin flipper type of device, and found that people could affect the way uh, the output came out. And uh, this student wanted to build a, an REG, a random event generator, uh, and see if she could replicate the findings that Helmut Schmidt had uh, demonstrated. Uh, she went to a couple of her faculty uh, in the electrical engineering department, and uh, none of them were interested in supporting or overseeing a project like that. And um, she became a little bit discouraged, but she recalled that when they were uh, welcomed when she was a freshman, uh, and was, there was a welcoming ceremony by the dean of the engineering school, who told them that um, uh, if they did well in their their uh, coursework and were interested, they could do their research, independent research project on any topic that appealed to them. And she was calling him on it, so she went to see him and told him this is what she wanted to do. And although it was a topic that he had no background in or even any particular interest in, he felt that the design and construction of an electronic random event generator was a perfectly good uh, project for an undergraduate, whether or not the results showed anything. So he agreed to oversee her program, her project, and uh, he did, and about a year and a half later, they had some very interesting results that seemed to confirm what Schmidt had reported. And uh, the student was very happy. She got an A. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Bob found himself intrigued by what he had seen in the course of this. Um, basically, as an engineer... His uh, interest came from the point of view of a possible influence of human intention or human consciousness on the behavior of random physical systems, of which there are many in the engineering world. And um, it turns out that in the um, uh, course of his aerospace uh, research, he had contact with uh, Mr. James McDonnell, who at the time was the president of the McDonnell Aircraft Corporation, and also a Princeton alumnus. And they had a meeting, and at a, I guess they met at a conference, actually, and got to talking, and he told Mr. McDonnell about the student project, and Mr. McDonnell 
said, you know, this is a topic I'm quite interested in uh, because every once in a while we hear reports of what they call uh, gremlins uh, in aircraft where, you know, strange mishaps uh, that seem to occur, particularly when the pilot was under a lot of emotional stress. And he said to Bob, he said, I think this is a topic that should be studied more carefully uh, by an engineer. Uh, it's a topic I'd like to see uh, done at Princeton. And if you set up a program to do this, uh, I will fund it. So that took care of all of the basics. And uh, I guess the only thing that was missing was as an aerospace scientist with his own uh, program, and as a dean of the engineering school, he really did not have available time or resources to handle the day-to-day -day operations of such a program. And um, he invited me to, uh, to work with him. We met at a, a conference of the Parapsychological Association. Oh, I guess it was in 1978. And um, I was giving a talk about some ex research I had done in remote viewing. Um, in, uh, I was living in the Chicago area at that time, and I had read the uh, paper by Targ and Putoff about uh, their work in remote viewing. Uh, the article was in the Proceedings of the IEEE, and... Um, I was. I had now, at that point, had returned to school after a hiatus to uh, raise a family and wanted to complete my, my degree. So I was uh, back in school, and I had two majors, one of which was psychology. The other one was um, humanities. And for each of those, I had to do a uh, an independent senior project. So for the senior project in humanities, I did a study of altered states of consciousness. And for the psychology uh, portion, I thought it would be interesting to try to replicate the work that Targ and Putoff reported on and had carried out some experiments in remote viewing, uh, which were had quite striking results. So anyway, that's how I got to this conference, and I gave my talk about my remote viewing studies, and Bob was looking around trying to get to know the cast of characters and see if there was somebody that might be appropriate to help him with his program at Princeton. And uh, it was a, uh, our meeting was quite fortuitous, and I have had occasion since then to think back on our first exchange uh, which strikes me as rather profound. Uh, somebody in, informed me that he had uh, was looking to meet me, and so uh, during a break, I walked over to him and said, "I understand you've been looking for me." And he looked me in the eye very intently and said, "You might say that." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, that that was really how we met. We talked a bit about my talk. He asked me what I was planning to do next. I told him that I had some concerns about the judging procedures that were being used uh, and that I thought we needed something that was uh, a little bit more quantitative than just having people say, gee, that's a good match or that doesn't match. And um, he then suggested that we try looking at uh, desc descriptors and I can get into that uh, a little bit later, but basically at that, in that conversation, we outlined one of the major thrusts of the PAIR program to be. Um, anyway, he asked me if I'd be interested. I said I certainly would. Uh, as it happened, I had recently sold my house and my kids were in school. I was divorced and I was not quite sure what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Uh, and that sounded like a great way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> that does at, sound like a the, great way. <laughs> yep. Well, at the time, I was doing my graduate work at the University of Chicago uh, in uh, developmental psychology. And I was not really sure that was the field I wanted to make a living in. Uh, but it would get me my degree anyway. So 
to make a very long, complicated, and um, fascinating, really, story <laughs> short, uh, Bob approached his administration, told them what he wanted to set up this program. They were very reluctant. Um, however, um, Mr. McDonald had been a major uh, funder to the university. They didn't want to offend him. Bob, of course, had tenure, and uh, he was an administrative officer, and he kept invoking the principle of freedom of, uh, you know, uh, academic freedom. And eventually they gave in, thinking, well, you know what's going to happen? He's going to uh, find out there's nothing there and go back to his real work. So let him have his fun. (laughs) So they finally approved the program. Problem, of course, was getting them to approve me, and they, they had some real problems with why he would want to employ somebody from in, uh, a psychologist to manage a, an engineering program. Um, but uh, we got through that battle and finally <laughs> got me approved as well. And so, in 1979, in June. Um, I moved from the Chicago suburbs to Princeton, New Jersey, and um, uh, off we went. Uh, We agreed at the outset that the program would consist really of two major uh, aspects, and both of them from an engineering point of view. One of them would be a follow-on of the program that the student had started, namely to ask the question of whether human intention or emotion could affect the behavior of random physical systems. The other program was in the remote viewing, which we called remote perception, mainly because we felt there was more to it than just viewing. (coughs) Pardon me. And uh, trying to develop some kind of analytical technique whereby one could actually measure the amount of information that was acquired in this process. Uh, Are you familiar with the remote viewing concept? Yes, yes. Oh, okay. Um, That's basically somebody tries to describe a geographical location where another person is situated at a given time without any sensory uh, input. Um, So anyway, uh, the program got started. We ended up hiring a couple of people uh, to help us with uh, different aspects of it. Uh, Roger Nelson, who was a uh, psychologist, experimental psychologist. Uh, um, York Dobbins, who was a theoretical physicist. And uh, John Bradish, who was an electrical engineer. So we had a, uh, a wonderful, a small, but very interdisciplinary group working on these projects together. We uh, ended up, thanks to Bob's influence, commandeering a small area in the basement of the engineering school. It used to be a storage area associated with the machine shop. And we took that over, um, ex- expanded it a little bit, and... Uh, called it home. Uh, The lab was, uh, and it's an important factor, the lab, although it was a lab, was actually decorated like a somebody's living room. It had wood paneling on the walls. It had a uh, carpeting, comfortable chairs, a big comfortable sofa. And uh, it was a place that was very homey. And one of the features that I think was very important results that we did was that the people who volunteered to do our experiments, and they were all volunteers, nobody claimed to have unusual psychic abilities, but they did like coming to the lab because it was friendly. Uh, We always had tea or coffee and cookies and, you know, Hmm. and we would sit and and chat with people and, you know, did our very best to make them feel at home and to let them know that they were not subjects of the experiment, that they were operators. Uh, We were not testing their psychic abilities. We were testing whether their intentions as ordinary people could affect these random processes. That is 
unbelievably fascinating. Um, Brenda, we do need to break away for just a minute, though. Um, But we'll be back, guys. There's more to this story. We'll be back on My Side of the Universe on KOAL 107.3 FM and 750. Welcome back to My Side of the Universe on KOAL 107.3 FM and 750 AM. I'm your host, Todd Wilcox, and I'm joined today by Brenda Dunn. And you heard us talking about how consciousness can affect items with engineering. And um, one of the things I'm thinking about, Brenda, as you were talking is you, I know people that always get a bad car. Every car they get is a lemon. Um, there's always trouble with it. And I know other people <clears throat> who seem to have vehicles forever with almost no maintenance on it. Do you think that there is some kind of an interaction going on conscious, you know, at a, at probably not a conscious level, but, but their thoughts, maybe one has um, positive thoughts about the car and it's great performance. And the other one has the, everything happens to me. My stuff always breaks mentality. Have, am, am I on the right track with what you were studying? Well, uh, I, I'm, I'm both of those people. <laughs> I have had wonderful luck with my cars, which I've driven and they, they had to be red cars. Ah. Uh, I've had four cars in my life, the three red ones, we, at which I have, the one I'm driving now is 23 years old, uh, and uh, I just have wonderful luck with my red cars. Um, <laughs> we get along beautifully. On the other hand, I have uh, the, the opposite problem with electronic equipment, believe it or not, <laughs> computers and, and the likes. Yes. Uh, I do not have a smartphone because I had one once and it gave me such grief that I finally traded it in for a little flip phone. Uh, so, but you know, I've had that problem. I can't wear wristwatches because they always break on me. So yes, I think there is something to it okay. uh, on both sides of the, uh, the spectrum. Yeah. When you were talking about the gremlins, it, it got me thinking about, you know, vehicles and, and I'm one of those electronic guys and I think I need to spend some time changing my thoughts and my, and my overall maybe aura <laughs> or whatever you call it. But I've, I've, I've always made fun that it was my alien DNA causing these things to go wrong. Uh, maybe it's just my thoughts, my expectations and my intent that's making these things go wrong. Um, you know, there's a certain logic to it. Obviously, if you like a piece of equipment and you have a close resonant bond with it, you know, like a person with their car or some people with their computers or an instrument if you're a musician, you tend to treat the uh, the item more lovingly. Mm-hmm. You look after it more. Um, on the other hand, if there's things that constantly break uh, around you, Oh, God, we had so many communications from people who uh, blow light bulbs. Um, A lot of people report that whenever they walk in the street, the the light bulb that they're under pops. So, yeah, I do think this happens. I think there are these gremlins. I have a tendency to refer to them as digital demons because (laughs) they always get me on the digital stuff. Um. But yeah, I think I think there is something to it. And although, as I said, we didn't study people, we studied the, really the machines with the subject of our research. And as a result of that, we encouraged people to want to come back and generate very large databases to try to replicate their own effects um, rather than... Uh, uh, looking to see if we could identify people who had unusual abilities. So in that respect, we differed from the standard parapsychological programs that studied uh, the subjects with the people, the participants with the subjects. And they would be looking for people who had unusual abilities. We didn't. We wanted to see what ordinary people could do. And uh, that was one of the reasons why we made the place so friendly and, and comfortable. And I, I love but, the, the whole basement thing. It seems like the, the coolest things in, 
in my life started in a basement. Um, <laughs> and, and when you said that that was where you were assigned, I thought, oh boy, this is going to end really well because they, it almost always seems to be that way. Um, so that it's more about the process than the environment, I think. Um, oh, oh yeah. And the environment we created down there was very special. People were always rather surprised to see it, you know, and, uh, <laughs> In the early years, we didn't have a name for the program, and to identify the door to the lab, because of course we didn't have a standard room number, uh, we had put a, uh, a Greek letter psi on the door, which <laughs> I thought was rather clever at the time, because you know, psi is, means psychology, it means psychic phenomena, and it means wave function in physics. Perfect. Well, two or three times I had people come and ask me why I had a devil's pitchfork on my door. <laughs> and uh, I was find myself thinking, you know, what what is it about you that is projecting a devil's pitchfork onto the door of this lab? <laughs> and uh, one day this, uh, I opened the door and this guy was there with this look on his face and I recognized it, and I just said to him, no, it's not a devil's pitchfork, it's a Greek sigh. And he backed away with this look of terror and said, ah, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> and I said, what kind of a lab do you think this is anyway? And he took off down the hall, <laughs> uh, and um, we decided that we had to take the sigh off. And um, Temporarily, I put up a little poster that had a spiral galaxy, you know, with an arrow that says, you are here. Okay. <laughs> and uh, then one day, somebody told me that, uh, you know, that isn't really our galaxy. And I said, <laughs> oh, uh, I see. Thank you. I would hate to give people, you know, the wrong impression. The wrong directions. I tore off the poster, and I went into the lab, and I said, these people think we're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but in any event, shortly thereafter, Bob and I had decided we had to give the place a name, and we had gone out for lunch one day, and Bob suggested um, that, how did, how did I feel about naming it the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Program? Uh, I thought about that for a moment, and I said, P-E-A pair? Nah, and we could do something better than that. And he said, what's wrong with the pair? And I said, nothing. I just, it just doesn't appeal to me. So along came our lunch. He says, pass the salt. And I picked up the salt shaker that was a pewter pear. Oh. And I said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then the waitress came by later and said, can I interest you nice folks in dessert? We have some nice pear cake. Oh, and. <laughs> I I looked at Bob and I said, that's it. I give in, you know, because otherwise I'll walk out of here and get hit in the head with a pear. <laughs> <laughs> and that was how we got And nobody seemed to find a pear offensive. Um, in any event, uh, the program ran on, as I said, for a total of 28 years. And over the course of that, uh, those years, we accumulated a huge amount of data we had uh, several hundred people uh, who came by to participate and play with our experiments, and we did encourage them to regard it as play. And um, the ones in particular, we wanted people to come back and repeat the experiments many times, and that turned out to be rather important. We, uh, in addition to the microelectronic random event generator, we had a huge pinball machine on the wall of one, uh, one of the walls of the lab. It was a, oh, eight feet by 10 feet, uh, and it had 9,000 little three inch, three quarter inch marbles that tumbled down through several hundred, p uh, pins that stuck out into an array of collecting bins at the bottom. And consistent with the laws of statistics, they would fall in the shape of a bell curve, a, a, a typical Gaussian distribution, they called it. And so people would sit on the sofa there and attempt to get more balls to go to the right or to the left. We had a, a pendulum 
very pretty pendulum that was a uh, crystal ball on a rod, and the uh, there was a device that measured the curios- periodicity of the pendulum swings, and people would try to get it to swing faster or slower. And there, there were a couple of other experiments. We had a little robot uh, that was driven by a, a random uh, uh, device that just wandered around this circular table, and its uh, trajectory was recorded by a little light in the ceiling that um, followed it around. And the idea was people would try to get the robot to come toward them or to go away from them. And in all of these experiments, we found uh, very small but statistically significant effects correlating with people's intentions. Now, the reason they were statistically significant, even though they were small, was because we had people generate lots and lots of data. For an example, imagine you're flipping coins and you have 10 coins and by chance you'd expect to get five heads and five tails, but you might get six heads and four tails and you wouldn't be very impressed by that. But if you flip the coin a hundred times and you got 60 heads and 40 tails, uh, you'd start thinking there was something funny going on. And uh, this is the the principle, of course, when you flip that coin 10,000 times uh, and you still see that same uh, preference for one direction or the other, uh, then you can come to the conclusion that from a statistical standpoint, something significant was going on. Now, it's important to recognize that statistics doesn't tell you what happens. It doesn't tell you how it happens or why it happens. It just tells you that it probably happened. And uh, we were able to, on the basis of the data we collected, conclude that something was very probably had happened. Um, And we did a number of variations on these experiments. We tried doing them from a long distance, uh, as in the remote uh, remote perception experiments, where people would uh, try to affect the machines from thousands of miles away or down the block or whatever. And we also had experiments where we did it off time, where people would attempt to uh, affect these devices uh, several hours or days before or after the machine was run. And interestingly, there seemed to be no difference between these remote experiments or off-time experiments uh, than what we saw in the laboratory. So uh, this this is, I think, a very profound and important finding because it indicated that whatever was happening was not some physical force emanating from the brain of the, the operator. Uh, because if it was, you'd start to see a, a, a decrease in the effect over distance. And you certainly would not be able to see a correlation with time. Yes. Um, so, uh, we, and we also tried experiments where we had uh, more than one person uh, working together. We called them co-operator experiments, where you'd ask two people uh, to work together to try to affect the device And there, too, we had a very curious finding that we had not expected. Namely, if the two people working together were of opposite sex, the results came out at just chance. If they were the same sex, um, the same thing. I'm sorry, I did that backwards. If they were the same sex, it would come out at chance. If they were of opposite sex, they were getting results that overall were about twice as large as what they would obtain individually. But most interestingly is if the couple, the, the, the two people, the co-operators, were a, what we called a bonded couple, namely, a, 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 you know, if they were in love, they had a close resident relationship with each other, their results were something like seven times larger than what they were getting individually. So here was a variable that we had not anticipated. That is, and, um, oh my lord! Yeah. Um, we uh, we need to get 
more involved in that, uh, Brenda. Let's let's uh, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back, guys. We're going to be with Brenda Dunn some more. We're going to talk about um, the work she did. We're also going to talk about um, she's going to be a part of Contact in the Desert. And Contact in the Desert, if you go to www.contactinthedesert.com, uh, you can register for the events. They're, they're online this year. You don't have to be there in person. And that's going to be June 25th through the 28th. Brenda's going to be a presenter. And, uh, boy, do I have some more questions for you in just a minute, Brenda. Um, we're going to be back, folks, with more My Side of the Universe on KOAL 107.3. FM and 7.50 AM. Welcome back to My Side of the Universe on KOAL, 107.3 FM and 7.50 AM. I'm your host, Todd Wilcox, and we've got Brenda Dunn joining us today. She's going to be presenting at Contact in the Desert. That's going to be June 25th through the 28th. Go to www.contactinthedesert.com to find out more. Um, one thing um, before we get too much involved in this, you said um, you didn't think anybody would find the pair offensive. And immediately in my weird mind, I thought, well, I bet Steve Jobs would. <laughs> I'm not sure Steve Jobs is aware of it. <laughs> but I bet if we had used an apple, he probably would have been. There you go. There you go. So you, you got my poor reference, but I, I really cracked myself up with that. And uh, <laughs> hopefully a few people laughed <laughs> while they heard it. Um, I find it fascinating that... Um, when you were when you were testing people individually and, and you get their results, then then you then you match up same sex people and get virtually the same as when they were individual, but opposite sex you get a, a double the results, but on the bonded pair on a couple you get seven times uh, the results. That fascinates me. What do you think was going on there? Um. I really don't know. We looked at our full databases uh, and tried to distinguish if there was any difference between male and female operators. And we were really quite surprised to find that there were. Uh, the male operators tended to get better results in the directions of their intention, but very small. The females tended to get larger deviations, but they were much bigger. Um, and they were in the same direction. Uh, so it sort of makes a little bit of sense that if you get the female's uh, amplitude of the effect and the, the male um, uh, trajectory, uh, then uh, if they're together and they're both in tune with each other, they might do a better job. You know, one of the other things that uh, is important for me to note is that in speaking with all of our operators, very often they would speak of the fact that, you know, I know you're studying intention, but there's more than just having an intention. I have to have a, uh, a bond, a feeling, you know, a connection with the device. Very similar to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, with our cars or our technology. And um, we developed this uh, tiny little portable random event generator and we took it out uh, to different uh, uh, situations that might be emotionally uh, coherent, if you will, uh, as opposed to some control situation uh, that was emotionally bland. Um, for example, if the REG was running in the background of maybe a meditation group or a concert, uh, or some situation <clears throat> where people were, if you will, all on the same wavelength. Um, and I think we all have those experiences where you just, everybody's just in sync because there's something transformative uh, going on. Mm -hmm. And there again, we were seeing that the random event generators were producing strong deviations in these resonance situations, but if you took it to a lecture or just let it run during, a, you know, while you were having lunch or something, um, you wouldn't get any results beyond chance. So the important thing that we came out of all of this with is that there are two variables that seem to be important. One of them is to have an intention, and the other is to have an emotional uh, resonance with, with what you're doing. 
And when these two are together, almost the same as when the male and female operators are working together, it seems to affect the randomness in the environment. That is, it, it seems to reduce the randomness somewhat um, or reduce the entropy that one would expect by chance. And it was really, you know, along those lines, and after we saw this over and over again, we, <clears throat> excuse me, we realized that um, although we thought we were studying intention and, you know, the uh, deviations on the machines, uh, what we were really looking at was the processes of consciousness, which led to some many fascinating conversations about what does this imply for the nature of consciousness? What is consciousness? You know, when we first started out, people, you couldn't even use the word consciousness uh, in scientific circles. And now you can, except that most of the scientists who are looking at consciousness are looking at the brain. And they're convinced that consciousness is something that the brain produces. Um, we would refute that by pointing out that uh, it doesn't it doesn't work that way. Uh, the remote experiments and the off time experiments make it very clear that the brain is not involved here. And um, it, what we're seeing it goes against all of the laws of physics as they are known. And they also aren't consistent with what's known in psychology. Um, but it may be correlated with something biological. Because if you start thinking about, can you think of a process that is fundamentally random where uh, consciousness might change, a, produce a very small effect that would compound over many, many efforts uh, one of the things that comes to mind is evolution. Perhaps we were looking at some biological process. Um, the uh, Elan Vital, you know, the life force that is something that consciousness is not necessarily something that we produce with our brains. It's something that we tune into with our brains and that perhaps consciousness is associated with the grander, what we call the source. Uh, what William James referred to as the aboriginal sensible muchness, <laughs> which I love, uh, and that somehow consciousness is able, with by through intention, to go into that potentiality of the universe and draw from it the information that it is looking for, uh, if one is resonant with the with the universe. Anyway, that that gets very speculative, um, but it's still something we're thinking about. Yeah, um, without question. Um, I've I've got to tell you, my head hurts thinking about the different possibilities and how how this all ties in. Um, the average person is not looking mine, mine at mine does the, too, for what it's worth. Yeah, the uh, the emotional resonance when you match it with the intention. Um, I, I sit through meetings quite often and I think what a waste of time. Um, and I'm trying to use what you're talking about as, as a, as a way to make meetings much more, not only productive, but actually get something, get a better result at the end. Um, you know, you get this group of people, you, you, you should have, um, the intent set and, and if you can find that emotional resonance and, and get everybody going the right way in, in your meeting and it, and it might be, you know, like you see the football coach getting everybody fired up or something. I don't know. I'm, I'm uh, a yeah. little rambling right now, but there's got to be a way to tie this into getting more out of the, the meetings that just put people to sleep. Yeah. Well, possibly playing music. <laughs> Ooh. You know, that, that's something that people resonate with. But, of course, you'd have to know what kind of music. It'd be a difference between a, a Mozart symphony or a rap song. You know, it mm -hmm. depends on your audience and age and all that. But that's one thought. Well, I just love the digital demons. I need to work on that in my own life and uh, see what I can do to, to get these things better because we just had a glitch. And it was probably because 
I was thinking about it as I was touching something. So Brenda, just you know, in the, in the few minutes that we have left, maybe let's look at Contact in the Desert. It's going to be June 25th through the 28th. They can find it at contactinthedesert.com. And um, you're going to be presenting consciousness and the source of reality. Is there going to be a lot different than what we've talked about now? Or is it going to be you know, kind of along the same lines as what we've just been discussing? It will probably be along the same lines, but I will attempt to uh, not to ramble so much um, <laughs> because I think I, I would prefer to speak about the implications of this work rather than you know the the scientific experiments. Ah. Uh, you know what does what does it mean? Uh, and I think I think it has a great a very profound meaning beyond whether random processes are vulnerable to human intention. So I, I would focus more on, you know, what is consciousness and what does this tell us about consciousness? Excellent. And have you been, and this is a little off topic, but, you know, the world has changed over the last year, and have you been doing this type of presentation um, even before um, everybody got quarantined. Uh, you're doing a lot of it now. Um, how are you looking forward to this? Well, you know, uh, when Bob John passed away three years ago, uh, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. I, we had closed the lab, not because the university forced it, I should mention. People think they closed us down. They did not. <clears throat> they didn't like what we were doing very much, but they never tried to shut us down. We shut down because Bob was retiring from his uh, professorship. And frankly, we felt that we had already learned what we set out to learn. There wasn't going to be much more to find out uh, with this approach <clears throat> and the constraints that we had uh, on the research you know, imposed by the university. Um, but what I discovered in the last two years or so uh, I've been invited by many people or organizations to give presentations about the work we did at PEAR, and there seems to be a growing interest in it. <clears throat> there are people that contact me that they're trying to replicate what we're doing, or they have an idea for an experiment. And so I find myself more in the role of a mentor than a researcher, which is fine with me because I've never been too hot on statistics and that sort of thing. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm more of a people person, and um, I, I have seen a growing interest in this topic, and there is a growing interest in the study of consciousness. Um, so things are changing, and I think, you know, what we've all been through in the last year and a half with this pandemic has forced many of us to turn inward, think about what's really important, who are we, uh, what does this mean? What, what's really valuable in life. Um, and uh, I think that has had an impact. I think it will have a long-standing, a long-term effect uh, as we move forward. I believe so as well. And I, I think it's for the better. We've talked about it many times on this show about the what feels like a reset to me. Um, people are, are doing a reset on, on how they you know, what's important? Is it, is it more important to go home with your family and have dinner? Or is it more important to, to, to go out and do something or, you know, the, the traffic is less and people seem to be, um, with that core group more and, and making better connections. Um, so I hope it's been a nice reset for the better. It may even be a global reset on a larger scale since this does seem to be, you know, maybe, uh, the climate situation, or the pan, you know the the uh, coronavirus, whatever it is, um, it, it's almost as if our relationship with the natural world is changing. Yes, and we're coming back into it. People want to get outside. They want to be you know in the woods or in a park. Uh, being cooped up in the house all the time is is stress stressful. Um, so I think we're becoming more appreciative of the natural world as well. And yeah. obviously there are people on the other side of this equation, but if you think of it uh, in terms of the experiments we did, we found that sometimes only a few bits in 10,000 can change the mean of a distribution. 
So it doesn't mean that everybody has to be on the same wavelength, but if a certain um, percentage, a certain, um, what's the term I'm trying to think of, um, uh, whatever, okay. <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say, I hope. A portion, you know, yeah. yeah. portion of, of the population is uh, tuning in. It may have a healing effect on the planet and on our collective consciousness as well. I I certainly hope so, and that's what I'm looking for. Brenda, unfortunately, we've run out of time. Um, I would love to have you on the show again and and uh, go into this even deeper if if you'd be interested in that. Sure, I'd be happy to. Very good. Um, don't worry, folks. We are going to be right back with more My Side of the Universe on KOAL 107.3 FM at 7.50 a.m. Welcome back to My Side of the Universe on KOAL 107.3 FM and 7.50 AM. I'm your host, Todd Wilcox, and I had a wonderful hour. It was the fastest hour of the week. It was my favorite hour of the week, and I had so much fun talking to Brenda Dunn today. She was amazing. Uh, Check her out at www.icrl.org, and also look for her books. One of them is Margins of Reality, The Role of Consciousness in the Physical World, And then the one that I'm probably going to start with is Molecular Memories. Um, So go see what she has to offer and and check out Contact in the Desert. If you you look at Contact in the Desert and look at the different people that they have there, you will be shocked at how many people are all going to be at one event. This year it's all online. Uh, In the past it's been uh, at at a meeting place. And that was awesome because you never know who you were going to be standing next to in line or just walking down the hall with. Um, might be somebody from Ancient Aliens or some other show or a great author. So much fun. Um, we're still going to have all the authors and the different experts in the field. But now it's going to be online. We'll see how it is. I think it's going to be exciting. Uh, I know that just based on, on the people that we've talked to for it, there's going to be some great guests and you're really going to enjoy it. So check that out and see what you think. Be sure to support our our sponsors, the Eastern Utah History and Tourism Association. Say hi to Miss Kitty and Mr. Bobcat and uh, see what they have. Tell them Todd sent you or not. It doesn't matter. Talk to their ghosts. Have a good time. You have to go check it out. Thank you for joining us each week on My Side of the Universe. I really appreciate it. It is by far my favorite hour of the week and the fastest hour of my week, and I I thank you for joining us on it. Uh, We'll see you next week. But I want you to remember, you matter. Until you multiply yourself by the speed of light squared, then you energy. We'll see you next time on My Side of the Universe on KOAL 107.3 FM and 7.50 AM.